Welcome back to MERS Monday. For more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. In this week's edition of MERS Monday, AFL-CIO President Ron Bieber says the public is on the side of organized labor as the legislature repeals right to work and brings back prevailing wage. Michigan Republican Party Chair Christina Caramo talks about her 2023 goals, the 2024 presidential primary, and her faith. And it was everything, everywhere, all at once last week in the state legislature. Josh Pugh from Truscott Rossman stops by to help break down the reason for the rush, the threat of legislative recalls, and more. Now, here's MERS News editor Kyle Malin with publisher John Ruhrink and reporter Danielle James. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. As some of our folks who follow the Oscars know, there is a movie called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once that won something last night. I was preparing my NCAA tournament bracket so I don't lose the Josh Pugh again this year on the MERS bracket, so I didn't watch this. But when I heard that this movie had won, I couldn't help but think about this past week where it seemed like Everything, Everywhere, all at once, John. Yeah, they uh, the House on Wednesday took up items that probably should have filled news cycles for three weeks uh, going, right? Easily could have. I yeah. mean, uh, prevailing wage should have been one week. Uh, right to work repeal should have been the next week. The, the firearm changes should have been the third week. But we did it all in one day. All in one day? And the lobbyists I talked to beforehand were like, oh my God, we're going to be here till 2, two in the morning. And they were out of there by 9.30. Yeah, well, I thought we were going to be there all night, too, but we got done at 9.30, and Josh Pugh is joining us here from Trescott Rossman. Thanks for coming over, Josh. As, as, as you were watching all these things go through, was your mind going where John's was? That How could all this be going on all at the same time? It was, and I think a lot of times as Democrats, that's our instinct is to be afraid, uh, so afraid of losing any votes that we don't like to take any risks. Um, and I think uh, that... That is the tendency a lot of times, especially for Democrats, is to, to really be afraid of our own shadows. Um, but I also think that uh, when you have the votes, you vote. And I, I remember, I think back to December, uh, and a lot of us were kicking around, you know, what are the priorities of this new legislative majority going to be? And I think we have a pretty good idea of what those priorities are. And it's the things that they're acting on right now. Uh, and that the the idea that um, they would act on them now instead of waiting for some future uh, time that's right now unknown um, is uh, probably foolish because they have the votes right now. Um, we've seen over the last few weeks uh, a couple Democratic members get COVID. Um, and we've seen over past legislative sessions um, when you've got 148 lawmakers, unfortunately, uh, it's likely to assume that somebody's going to get a new job, uh, or that somebody's going to be convicted of a crime and have to leave their office, that someone, unfortunately, is going to pass away uh, in an untimely fashion. And so uh, it's not likely that it, it's very likely that something is going to happen. Right. You've got two Democratic members already running for mayor in their hometowns um, that and those those elections are going to be uh, in, in the next year um, and could impact the vote counts. Yeah. Next, it, at some point in the session. Well, and that's what I was thinking of. And Danny, I know that you worked on something for us here at MERS. When you're looking at such a slim majority here for the Democrats, they have literally no room for error. 56 members, the bare majority in the House, 
20, the bare majority in the Senate. And we took a look back and we had to scramble to find a year where the house that got sworn in was the house that graduated at the end of the year. It doesn't, that is the exception. That's not the rule. Yeah, absolutely. There were, it took me at least a few hours going back through the old house journals to find one instance. And I don't believe we found much more than that. Um, and it's just, you know, things change and people move around. And I think that's a really good point. Um, I guess, you know, from from my perspective, I spent the last week, uh, for people who don't know, in Florida um, doing a little spring break, which was a great vacation. But I kind of struggled to, to follow along, not being as involved as I normally am. And I guess my question is, you know, just doing this all at once, is there concern that it does bury the lead a little bit? Uh, it probably does. But, you know, Josh's point about getting it done while you can get it done is, is also is also a pretty valid one. And the interesting thing, too, is I was thinking about it, uh, Kyle, and you did a great piece on Friday about the success rate of, of recalls. And there's already threats of recalls going out over the gun issue. I wouldn't be surprised if there's threats of recalls over some of the other, other stuff. Um, do Democrats really have to be as afraid as, as, as you say they are? I mean, granted, there were two members of the Senate that were peeled off 40 years ago that gave Republicans the Senate for four decades. But I, it's different now, isn't I it? I would also ask if we think that the majority of voters in the 2024 election are going to be learning about what the House and Senate do through their policy agenda from news headlines right now or from the direct mail they get. And so, and, and uh, ads online and uh, phone calls and TV ads, I'm sure there will be a lot of those again in Michigan in 2024. And so uh, when you look at it that way, does it really matter if the legislature passes their entire agenda in January 2023 and then adjourns for two years? Um, you know, <laughs> I don't people, see that happening. Most, most voters, <laughs> uh, this is going to come as a shock to you guys. Most voters do not consume information the way that the four of us do. Uh, and so, that's, yeah, that's, that's a good point. True. And so, absolutely, Danny, they are to- they are definitely burying the lead. They're packing as much <laughs> into this lead as they possibly can. And I will, I'll admit again to to sharing that same instinct. Um, that that we use to kick off this podcast. Um, but I also think uh, that the calculation that's been made by the speaker um, and by the, the folks who are running the agenda right now is we don't know what's going to happen with this 56 and 20 vote majorities that we have. Um, and so these things that are our top priorities right now, um, they may not be our top priorities or they may not be possible to pass a year from now or even a month from now. Um, and so let's let's strike while the iron's hot. You know, you heard Jim Hodsma say we've got spring break coming up and we want to get these things done before then. Um, maybe it's spring break, you know, and any one of these things could take uh, take a key lawmaker out of commission. Um, and, and you want to you want to act while you can. You know, you mentioned recalls, too. And if we have to worry about recalls and you know, the the rules on recalls have gotten so got so tight after the last big push for recalls in 2011-2012. Uh, I know you remember that, Josh. When we had almost the entire Republican Senate either have a recall petition out circulated against them, or at the very least, a recall committee that had been established against them. And you look at all those threats, none of them ever came to pass. Mm-hmm. And then we had one in the House that came after a real concentrated effort. But since then, the rules have gotten so tight, 60 days now instead of 90 days, to get 25% of the number of voters who voted for governor, for governor, not even state house, for governor in that particular area. 
uh, you got to get to sign in 60 days. And, uh, you know, that you would have to start also in July. You can't, you couldn't start right now. You'd have to wait until July 1. By then, do as many people care? I don't know. I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But history has shown that, and I, and to get to the 76 number, uh, it took me quite a while because this was board of canvassers for different counties. I went back in the archives. Uh, luckily, we kept pretty good records back then uh, on the number of recalls. But talk uh, the point on this, Josh, and the, the thing that I wanted to mention here, when it comes to recalls, talk is often very cheap. And I think that the other thing that's happened over the last decade in, 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 since the change, the, the substantial change in recall law uh is that these elections have gotten a lot more nationalized and professionalized and centralized. And so what the law essentially, the change in law essentially did was make it, uh, to your point, make the time horizon shorter, um, but also make it so it's no longer a yes, no on the recall. It's a heads up election. And so at the same time as these November and August elections are getting uh, a, a lot more centralized, nationalized, and and also the the party caucuses are playing a greater role, and they're getting a lot more expensive. The law changed things so that recalls are forced to be on that same playing field, and so what they've done is they 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 just driven the price tag way up, and so mm-hmm. you're you're it's not even so much that it's 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 hard to pull it off; it's it's nearly impossible to pull it off because you can't do it with a grassroots group of people anymore, right? You've got to raise hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, just to get on the ballot. And then you've got to do two things, which you have to do in any election uh, against an incumbent, right? First, you have to get people to decide, uh, no, I want to vote against this incumbent. And then you have to get them to think to consider the challenger. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to do that on a smaller time horizon, and you have to do it at a time when uh, Joe Biden and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the Senate campaign aren't also spending untold sums to make these same arguments for you. And so it does make the the degree of difficulty a lot harder and more expensive. It seems like things have gotten super partisan. When you take a look at the votes, and maybe it's just because of the subject that uh, that we're talking about here, whether it's gun control, whether it's right to work and prevailing wage restoration, um, the votes were Republicans vote no. The Democrats vote yes, and there wasn't a lot of in, there wasn't a lot of intermingling. There was a little bit with the Elliott Larson expansion, but not a heck of a lot. And the reason I bring this up, Danny, is because over on the Republican side, we do have a member who was working to try and build a little bit of uh, I don't know rapport. Is that the right words? A, a little bit of a working relationship between the Republicans and the Democrats. I'm bringing up Mike Mueller who the Republicans got agitated against because he was the 56th vote on the governor's tax plan. But his point was all along as well, I kind of like what this is, and I I, I like it. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to vote for it. And then what he got in return was, I, I don't want anything for me. I just want some of my Republican friends who got shafted on committees to be on some of the committees that they really wanted to be on. And maybe we can start the ball rolling on some goodwill. And I understand uh, since then that uh, the House Minority Leader Matt Hall and Speaker Joe Tate have have kind of gotten, kind of broken the ice a little bit and are are starting to work a little together. But I don't know. What do you see? Do you you see any opportunities here for working forward or do we got to get through these contentious issues first and maybe we can work together later? 
You know, I'm I'm hoping so. And I think, you know, like you said, we've seen it begin to pay off a little bit with some of these these committee shovels um, in the first, you know, three months. I think that there are a few contentious issues that it's been hard to get bipartisan support on more than, you know, just one or two people. But then again, you have seen those one or two Republican yes votes on, you know, the abortion package, um, some of this legislation that maybe isn't getting the caucus support. So I think there's definitely opportunities for them to kind of move forward and continue the spirit of bipartisanship. It's going to be hard, though, when the issues are right to work and and gun control, they've almost become partisan issues, John. Yeah, they really have. Well, the whole process has become so partisan. It's almost like that. what's best for your constituents is, is second or third on the list. What's best for your, what, what the caucus is telling you is number one on the list. Um, and, and everything else be damned. So it's tough, though. Is it the spillover from the national environment, that's, that's, Josh? There's, there's definitely a high degree of that. Um, you know, the to, to John's point, these these folks are no longer spending the majority of their time interacting with constituents face to face. They're no longer spending much time at all um, doing a coffee hour with uh, where the, the the guest list is sort of unfiltered. Anybody can come with their issues. Um, the majority of the time is spent on social media. And as, as we all know, uh, people are saying things and behaving in ways in social media that they probably would never mm-hmm. behave face-to-face. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so, I, I mean, you look at the, uh, the bank run that happened just, just prior to the weekend, right? It seems like that was really inflamed by social media. And even these titans of industry and venture capital in Silicon Valley um, were, were getting together in, in their Telegram chats and on Twitter um, and rushing to judgment and, and rushing in such a way that, that created potentially havoc for the global economy, if not certainly for this one bank that they all banked at. And so it's so inflaming. Um, and you see that uh, in, in colorful ways in politics as well, um, where, you know, I don't know if, if you look at uh, the abortion issue, maybe not the first one that folks would think there could be bipartisan agreement on, but even Tudor Dixon was telling people, uh, look, you can vote yes on, on Proposal 3 and still vote for me. Um, many Republicans uh, all over uh, the state were saying in their mail and saying in their campaigns that, you know, I'm, I'm reasonable. I, I care about access to health care. I can be reasoned with on this issue. And then when it comes down to it, the, we're, we're talking about the bare minimum, right? We're repealing a 1931 law that that is really just heinous in the way that it treated this issue. And furthermore, it's unconstitutional. It's, it's completely irrelevant. And we get two Republican votes in the House, and then Right to Work comes out and says, like, these these two are persona non grata. And by the time it gets to the Senate, nobody's willing to play ball. It's a straight red-blue divided vote. And so I, I don't know, you know, we can sit here and judge the voting records all day long, but I don't know if we could if we sat here all day and tried to come up with an issue that could really see some bipartisan. We had a, a book-closing supplemental um, that was turned with, with money for projects in the thumb and in Escanaba that was turned yeah. into somehow this, this vitriolic thing. Uh, I just don't know anymore uh, what what the Democrats are supposed to do to, to get people besides Mike Mueller uh, to get the other side to, to play ball and really calm the temperature. But I agree with Danny that uh, I hope that there's uh, there's some latitude for that to happen going forward. Yeah, it's, it's a, it feels though like it's a climate where even like Great Lakes preservation could become a partisan football. Right. I mean, the one thing we should all be able to agree on is preserving the Great Lakes, and I could I could see it becoming a partisan issue if, if the wrong person advanced it or got behind it. Well, we've got another couple weeks until spring break, and we've got another few key votes, and uh, we'll we'll see if there's something that everyone can agree on. 
Uh, but for now, it's looking like the red and blue uh, playing field that you mentioned there, Josh. Well, with that, let's uh, take a moment here, and we're going to talk about this and many other issues with Ron Bieber. Not only what we've known. Join us now on the podcast as the president of the AFL-CIO here in Michigan, Ron Bieber. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Kyle. It's great to be with you. The Senate Labor Committee is scheduled to take up a repeal of right to work and a restoration of prevailing wage. 8.30 in the morning on Tuesday, so they're getting started right out of the gate with uh, with these two pieces or three pieces actually of legislation. Why is it important for the AFL-CIO to see these bills move as quickly as they're moving? Well, that's a, that's a good question. You know, this this what we witnessed last week was a historic first step to undo decades of attacks on working people in Michigan and across the the whole country. So um, you know, there when the when the Democrats won the majority, there was a lot of interest by working people in this state to get things moving to restore workers rights and make Michigan a workers rights state again and you know workers have been under attack like I said for 40 years and then those years the Snyder Cali years were terrible for workers in Michigan worker suppression laws passed one after another so there was a lot of a lot of pent-up interest to restore workers rights by working people and you know and they didn't want to wait to do it just curious, there's already talk about a, a proposal to amend the Constitution to bring uh, right to work back. What does that do uh, in terms of turnout, do you think, in, in 24, if it, if it were to happen? I I would call, I, I don't know what it'll do to turnout right now, John, but I, I here's what I have to say about that. Uh, those worker suppression ballot proposals, we uh, it passed here in 12. That was a whole different animal than next year will be. There were about six constitutional amendments on that year, and there was a big campaign vote no on everything. And I don't think our that issue got a proper hearing, which will change now. And the whole landscape has changed in the whole country since then. Ohio in 2014, they couldn't the ones who wanted they wanted to do the same thing in Ohio, put right to work on the ballot. They couldn't even get enough signatures in 2018 in deep red Missouri. It went on the ballot. And 67% voted to defeat it. And I don't know how many people notice our neighbors in Illinois, but I do what happens down there because I've got a lot of friends in the labor movement down there. Last year, Illinois voters voted overwhelmingly to enshrine collective bargaining rights and organizing rights in their constitution. So the exact opposite of those who wanna, wanna are talking about uh, running a ballot proposal here. We haven't even passed the law yet, for God's sakes. But, um, <laughs> well, we know that's coming though, Ron, let's be honest. I, 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 maybe, we'll see. I, it's, it's Betsy DeVos and her billionaire class buddies and Jace Bulger being out front as their mouthpiece for them. And, you know, I, this thing can go both ways is my point. And I think we're, and they, they, uh, I, I read in the paper where they're saying, well, look at Tennessee passed it last year. We've, <laughs> we've got a lot more in common in Michigan with Illinois than I think we do with Tennessee. Tennessee is a deeply conservative 
states. So these things can go both ways. I would throw caution. I'll say this. If I was ever, it won't happen unless I buy a lottery ticket that's lucky. But if I was ever in that position, I would hope I could find better things to do with my money. Go help some homeless people and, and feed the poor. I mean, this is this is way out of hand. I, I'll I'll say this. I I've been doing this a long time, and and uh, this labor work my whole life, and I've worked with companies every day of my working life. What companies look for is stability. They want to know stability when they're looking for where to invest or where to, where to locate. I, we've got it figured out pretty good in Michigan. We've been we've been at this labor relations business between labor and our companies a long time. And we've got it figured out pretty good. You don't hear these complaints from the from the organized union represented companies. They're not the ones that are screaming up and down that we've got to have a constitutional amendment or get rid of, or, or worried about right to work. They got it, we've got it figured out. You know, along the same lines, post the passage of this right to work and package in the house, I'm curious, you know, what you make of the package Rep Andrews is spearheading now. Um, just for a little bit of background, you know, this is legislation that would allow public employers to deduct union dues from paychecks. Um, it would allow, you know, members to write off their union dues from the state impact, income tax, excuse me, things like that. I will, I will say this, Joey Andrews has turned out to be a great representative of, of uh, the people in his district. But there's a, there's a lot of those things are what we're looking to do is and when when they pass right to work it has nothing to do with anybody's right to a job or or uh have to to be able to have employment it has nothing to do with that what it is is a power grab it's designed to take money away and in theory starve out labor unions so that they're not as powerful and, and that rich in in corporate interests can grab that power now i'll speak to that package there were a lot of these worker suppression bills that were done during the Snyder Cali years. One of them was, and in that package is a bill to restore the right for union workers to be able to do payroll deduction to a, a union PAC. Where's the good public policy in that, uh, in taking that away? You can still donate to a, a company's PAC if you want, but they took, they passed a law where unions and, and their employers had bargained to be able to do payroll deduction. No different than you do to a charity. There's no cost to it. Once it's set up, there's no cost. But to take that away, that's just a power grab. There's there's no good public policy there. Same thing with uh, payroll deduction of, of union dues. Labor and management have worked that out that it's just a sign up and a one uh, computer system generated thing where it comes out of your out of your pay where's the good public policy in eliminating the right to do that there is none it's it's just a power grab so most of those things in rep andrews package are just restoring the balance of power leveling the playing field getting things back to an even keel and restoring workers rights ron do you believe a majority of the general public is on the side of organized labor I do, um, and that's what I was trying to say earlier. We're in a lot different place than we were in 2012. Gallup does a poll every year, and labor unions in the last poll from uh, last June, they put it out every June, labor unions are polling at a 65 or no, 60 year high. It's like 
And most, the vast majority of workers who aren't in a union today would join a union if they could. And, and for the billionaire class, be careful because that, that, that number is even higher amongst the young people. So I would say the future of, of labor unions in this country are pretty good. We're actually, we've done a poll and I've, I've seen polls on, you know, on, on both sides and, and those who don't think like I do will produce polls that show that right to work is popular. Well, we did a poll, we did not. I mean, it was a straight up poll because we want to know. And our policies and labor unions and support for labor it is very high. We're going to release that poll later this afternoon, so you'll be able to see it. But I'm very confident um, where we stand with the public on our issues and in general support for collective bargaining and what, what unions do. Is there more that you think you can do to inform people about the benefit of joining a union? and Or if not, why do you think the trend has changed? I some of it, I think it's been morphing our way. A lot of it has to do, you, you, you saw during the pandemic, the, what they call the great resignation. When, when I, I, and I mean, I looked hard at why people were walking away from these jobs. It was because people are just fed up and there's been so much worker suppression over so many years. People just aren't gonna work crummy jobs for crummy pay and being treated crumb, crummy while, while doing it. And they're walking away from these jobs. You know, there these occupations where there's a shortage of workers to fill those jobs, there's not necessarily a shortage of workers. There's a shortage of people who are not willing anymore to be treated terribly while doing jobs that aren't great. And that's a big part of the problem. So, I mean, I think this country is morphing to a place where they're just mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore when it comes to uh, worker relations and being treated badly at work. It's it's a, it's a product of a system of worker suppression, like I've said, over 40 years. The system here in Michigan has been rigged. Everybody knew. And, and here's here's where the panic is on the billionaire class side, I think. Everybody knows they were rigging the gerrymandering the districts. They The ones who were in the room doing it, well, have now um, are coming to confession and saying, you know, yeah, we did it. I was in the room when we did it. I was on a pad podcast with one of them a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> they know everybody knew they were doing it. And now in 2018, you saw it. And it's the same thing, whether you're in a union represented or not, ordinary working citizens are taking control. In 2018, when they passed the ballot proposal that instituted the Independent Redistricting Commission, that wasn't labor. That was a citizen-led issue or mm -hmm. effort, and that that was a game changer. They can't those in, the rich and powerful in power can't rig those districts anymore. And now you've got fair elections, fair district, fairer districts, and you see what happened. And I think that's that's that wasn't labor. That was citizens, and I think that's an indication of where we're headed. You kind of gave us your elevator pitch on why why join a union. What's your elevator pitch when you're asked by folks that maybe aren't tied to the labor movement why they should care about uh, the repeal of right to work and, and what's the advantage for the state of Michigan if you're you know. and, and and I really didn't answer that last question. I, I think it takes a, it's going to take a lot more education because the the phrase itself is you got to do a lot of explanation. If and that's why the poll 
that we were honest in our poll. And when the other side produces a poll, it's going to everybody is in favor of the right to work. Well, that that's a misnomer that that right to work law has nothing to do with anybody's um, ability to have employment or to have a job. Nothing. It's, it's a rotten, crummy term that doesn't mean what it says. It, it means you, it literally means you have the right to do work for less because in states that are not right to work states, the BLS statistics show that average uh, wages are $8,900 more a year. It's those sorts of things, John, that we're going to work. If the other side wants to pick a fight, I'm confident that we will we will educate and we when worker working people in this state find out the truth that it, it, we will prevail that we we want we want we want to represent everybody we want all workers to do well we you know when I, when I get up in the morning I don't think I'm just going out to do my job for union represented workers I want to make every worker's life better. And when we bring standards up, we want workers to be safe. I don't care um, if they're union represented or not, but that only happens if unions drive the process to make conditions and wages and benefits to a level that's higher. It's not going to happen on its own. Corporate greed won't allow it. It just, it just won't. You know, and I'll say this, we, we're not, we love our companies. We want our companies to succeed and do really, really well. All we want is for working people to have a fair shot at a decent life. We understand we're not, I'm not going to be a billionaire unless I hit one of those big, big, big mega millions things. I'm, I'm not going to be one. I get that. But I just want working people to be able to go to work and come home in the same condition as they left. And as, as President Biden says, hopefully have a little breathing room at the end of the month and have a fair shot at them and their families having a chance at a decent life. Danny, you got one more? Yeah, you know, this is something that is, you know, definitely on the horizon, on, you know, the tip of everyone's tongue's forefront of their minds. I'm just curious, you know, after this moves through the legislature, you know, what's next? For these bills? For the the Rebellion for your priorities, I guess. Oh, well, we've got, we've got other priorities. I, I, uh, we, there there was a lot of things that were, there's a long list, let me put it that way. There were a lot of things that, that were worker suppression type laws that were changed during those Snyder Cali years. They, you know, they took away six weeks of unemployment. I thought that was a travesty at a time. Unemployment hasn't been raised in this state in a long, long, long time. Teachers just took a beating during, during those years. They... I keep saying the billionaire class, but it's them. They, there are particular ones who hate public education, hate teachers unions, and hate hate public teachers. And it was a travesty what happened to that. We need our best and brightest going in to be teachers, but they're not going to do it if they're treated terribly while doing it. And there's a there's a lot of things to fix there. I we we want to help all workers do better. At, there, there's something called the Alice Report, and it shows in Michigan, it, it studies how much workers make in, in communities and how much it takes just to, for a family, just to survive, just to be able to pay the, the basics, rent, food, clothing. 40% of Michigan's working families don't make enough just to survive. And that's just not right. And I, I wanna work to make Michigan a state where working people have a fair shot at a decent life. 
Ron, one more question here for you. I, I wanted to get your take on the actual vote on the right to work repeal. 56 Democrats against 53 Republicans, strict party lines. What does that tell you? I, it, it tells me that our our partisan politics is way out of whack. We need to fix that, honestly. We need to get back to a place where it's not one side wanting the complete and utter destruction of the other side. And I can tell you, the side that I sit on, I don't think we're that way. Um, uh, that's why That's why we, in the political world, well, sometimes why we don't do as well, because we're just not that kind of people generally. We've got to fix the political system. And I and you watch going forward, um, the rich and powerful has pretty good control over one side of this equation. And I will bet you they will exert all kinds of problems. You know, when right to work passed in 2012, we had enough Republicans who would who had promised us they were not gonna vote to pass right to work. And every I know everybody knows because they told us what happened. The rich and powerful got on the phone and called them and said, you will vote for this or I will primary you. I'll stick all the money I need in there and you will lose. And that's how it passed to begin with. We have got to fix our political system and make it that we get back to a place where we're having debates over good public policy and not the complete and utter destruction of the other side. If we don't, heaven help us or our our democracy side uh, surviving. And I mean that. Uh, we've got to fix this. Ron Bieber, he's the president of the AFL-CIO here in Michigan. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you all. Join us now for the podcast, the chair of the Michigan Republican Party, Christina Caramo. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Kyle, for having me on. I want to start off by asking about goals. As you're looking ahead now in 2000, just 2023, the calendar year, what are your goals for the party? Really to strengthen up our base, uh, to really get organized. As we as Republicans, we're more individualists, so Many people in the past have found it very difficult to rally people to get everyone to go in a common direction, especially beyond just vote for a particular candidate. So what we're working on is just building a strong infrastructure and making sure we're connecting with every community in every part of the state. Um, unfortunately, I in the past, it seems that the party has been just Lansing focused, which Lansing is an important place because it's our state's capital. However, as a state party, we should be focused on the entire state. So those are the things that we're focused on and really showing people that Republicans are great neighbors. Unfortunately, the the brand Republican has been maligned and painted in such a way that we're just these cold-hearted individuals who really don't care about anyone unless they can personally serve us. And that's just not true. Uh, you have cold-hearted, awful people in all political affiliations. I'm not gonna sit here and act as though just Democrats are just awful people. That's not true. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Republicans are humans just like everyone else. And I know that sounds kind of strange, but I learned this during the SOS race because I would encounter people who would go, wow, you're nothing like those commercials. I'm like, yeah, that's why my opponent made them to <laughs> paint me as a monster. That's the purpose of it. 
And so we really want to show people that we're responsible neighbors here to serve and that we actually care about our communities and we want to do what's best for our children and your children can grow up and live free. Uh, what are the big roles of the party? Obviously, is coordinating and raising funds. You've got an open Senate seat coming up in 24. How much do you anticipate raising this year, next year, to, to make sure that the, the Republicans are competitive in that race? Well, you know, as a party as a whole for this cycle, we're going to need $50 million at least, I would say. And, and that that's a, that's a goal that we have. But of course, a lot more. The, the thing in politics is the more money you have, the better. So there's really no fixed number to say that's the magic number. Oh, you need the more you have, the more marketing you can do. Uh, one of the things that's going to make the Michigan Republican Party and making it now attractive for people to donate is leadership they trust. Uh, one of the things I'm sure people have noticed that there seems to be more fractures within the Republican Party because you have a segment who want to move us away from the platform and a segment who wants to move us closer to the platform. And the reality is, is that you have to have a common goal to rally around and have to see leadership who are following through with their campaign promises and the party platform. And that also includes state party leadership. And so when you have state party leadership who operates consistently with the platform and in a transparent manner, people want to give and also utilizing innovative strategies uh, that also makes people want to give. And having an open U.S. Senate seat makes us way more attractive because control of the U.S. Senate is going to come through Michigan. And so in the past, we saw like the last cycle, we were going up against incumbents. So even if people may like a candidate, they hedge their bets and think, well, will this candidate be able to overcome an incumbent? With an open U.S. Senate seat, innovative strategy, a more a community-based uh, state party, money will definitely come into the party as it has done so already. Yeah, you talk about, you know, the open U.S. Senate seat and looking ahead to 2024. What do you believe will be, you know, the really important, I guess, platform pieces for the MRP? Well, for one is economy. You know, we the, Repu the Republican Party has moved more populist. It's very, it's, it's almost shifting. It's, 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 you know, middle class, uh, fundamental, uh, foundational base. And with the populist movement, it's really going to be about protecting our jobs. That that's the one concern: protecting our jobs from any uh, you know jobs being exported, but also the influx of foreign control over some key infrastructure is very concerning. I'm sure many people are aware of what's going on um, in uh, Macosta County, where you have this battery factory that will be owned by a company where a third of the interest is controlled by CCP operatives. That's that's concerning. We know the CCP is not a friend of America. And to have a company with that level of control from the CCP in our state, irrespective of political affiliation, that makes people very uncomfortable. We've seen the CCP operatives interested in purchasing American farmland, which is concerning. So things of that nature are uh, protecting the homeland, not from a standpoint of we're afraid of outsiders, but from a standpoint of this is a government has shown to be hostile to America, wanting to get involved in some key state infrastructure. That's very concerning. And making sure the economy is strong. You know, the thing about it is when people can't feed their families, that 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 is a massive issue. But also, you know, some of the social issues will come to manifest because, you know, the Democratic Party has embraced an agenda that is not even liberal at this point. It is to the point where parents' rights are under attack, uh, to the point where children may be able to 
get uh, permanent body modifications without parental consent. You know, I mean, when, think about it. When we were children, I mean, I wanted to be a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle or a Power Ranger. So just, and that's not to minimize people who may actually be dealing with some other issues. But the point is that children oftentimes aren't in a position to make those kind of choices. So with the attack on parents' rights, those issues will be at the forefront. But we're really about protecting people's jobs and protecting the economy, protecting our national interests, and not allowing people's greed to jeopardize our national security. So there's many issues that we'll talk about, and they'll be consistent with the platform. The, the goal for us as a party is to be able to effectively communicate our positions. And that's one of the things that has not happened in the past. We communicate them as though everyone knows what we're talking about and thinks the way we think. And then when we get pushed back, we get defensive and run away from our positions. Uh, those days are over with, and we're just going to be effectively communicating our points. So there'll be lots of issues on the table. I'm sure uh, next year there'll be more things that the Senate candidate will be thinking about. Uh, Madam Chair, uh, obviously you've heard from skeptics who have been involved in the party before. They don't think you're going to be able to raise any money, that the party's going to go broke, and we're going to need to have all these independent PACs run in and save the day. I wanted to get your reaction to skeptics who think that uh, the party's going to crumble here under your leadership. It's just not based in fact. You know, these individuals, unfortunately, are motivated by power and they don't they don't control me. They wanted to have one of their puppets to be chair. And I'm not that I'm nobody's puppet. I follow the law. I follow my, my faith. I, that's what I follow. I do what's right. And the thing about it is, you know, there will be naysayers. And, and you know, this is the kind of frustration many people in the party have is that you have a new chair and all these people who feel that their death grip on power is failing. Now they want to go and, and spread fear and dissension, and they have the right to do that. Um, it's, it's not based in fact. As I mentioned before, we raised double what the last Republican nominee for Secretary of State raised. We did over 400 events. We trained and deployed over 18 vol 1,800 volunteers statewide. No statewide campaign accomplished that. So we evidenced through our SOS race what we were able to accomplish as far as fundraising, grassroots activism, and organization. And we're getting a lot of things done so far. Of course, some of it I won't discuss because I don't want to spill of our secrets to the Democrats. But the point is that these individuals are just angry because they are motivated by power. And that goes, again, that's irrespective of political affiliation. I don't, uh, this is one of the problems that has affected politics. And this is why many everyday people check out of politics because they're tired of the power hunger, power hungry, greedy people who in many occasions behave like a political mafia. They're tired of it. And so these individuals are losing their death grip on power because they're not motivated by saving the country. They're motivated by self. And so now they're out of their seats of power and so be it. But the Michigan Republican Party is thriving and doing well. And we will be moving forward to ensure that we're victorious in 2024. We'll be taking back the House and the Senate and the U.S. Senate and win the presidency through Michigan. Uh, on, the, on the presidential race, obviously the selection process is already starting. I think there are two or three candidates are in Iowa. How do you envision Michigan making its selection by statewide primary or by uh, a party? Um, what's the phrase? Caucus. I'm for? Caucus. Convention. Convention or caucus. Yeah. Well, that is yet to be seen. I'm sure everyone knows there is an issue uh, regarding with the RNC. Um, they have a rule as to when presidential primaries can't have to be a, a date where they can begin. Otherwise, we will be penalized at the RNC convention. So, you know, I'm not prepared to talk on it beyond that point. As state chair, it's not appropriate because the decision isn't up to me. 
but we definitely want to have a robust conversation amongst the delegates as what what to do. And we're confident that the RNC, if we are uh, we are in a position where we have to conduct a traditional primary, we're confident the RNC will grant us a waiver and we will not be penalized and lose our delegate count to the national convention. I, I can't imagine the RNC penalizing us for something that we we would have no control over. Granted that the Democratic Party is in control of the state, and they're the ones making the decision to move up the um, February primary. But, you know, there is a concern for many people, I will mention, of people jumping in primaries to try to sway it to a candidate they believe is potentially weaker. In many states, they do have a registration where you have to register by party to vote in a primary. And so that's one of the concerns we see in Michigan, and I've seen it in many races where one party uh, we've seen it with the Democratic Party in certain races where I knew of individuals who were running in a primary to go up against certain Democratic candidates who were very strong, and they opted to vote for the RICO Republican to give themselves an advantage. So there is some concern about that. But as chair, I don't make that decision. But there is definitely a strong conversation going on what to do in this regard, because you don't want to take away representation. And simultaneously, we want to make sure that we don't lose representation by being penalized. And then the third layer is, you know, we don't want to see people jumping in our primaries to try to sway it to their advantage. You know, I feel like your faith played a really big role in both of your campaigns for secretary of state and then for this party chair position. But I'm curious, you know, what role do you feel that faith will play in your new position? Well, it, it's just in my life, you know, in myself as a person, as a Christian, you know, we are not a religious organization, but my faith plays a large part of my life because as a society, we've become more secular. And I personally believe that it has been detrimental because as we become more secular, there's been a lot of issues. Like, look at the mental health crisis we experience in our nation. If you walk through life and you believe that this is it, this is it, there's nothing greater than yourself. This life is it. And your existence in life is miserable. And you feel that there's no one out there that cares about you, who loves you, and that you have to answer to. That can cause a very miserable existence. And I do believe that our society walking away from God has caused so much problems because when you realize at the end of the day, I have to answer to someone, that motivates you a lot different. And that's the way I feel. Like I have to answer to God for the decisions I make. So when I stand before people and ask them for a half million dollars, and I promise that, hey, this is how these dollars are going to be spent. I'm not just having to answer to that person, but I have to also answer to God that I told this person the truth. When I came to someone and say, hey, could you please contribute $20 a month to the Michigan Republican Party? Or, hey, could you vote for me for this? And then I don't keep my word. I not only am answering to that person, but I have to answer to God. So that motivates me to be the person that I tell people I am and main, remain consistent. And, you know, I think there's sometimes, and not to your questions, I think it was a, a very fair and great question, but sometimes people have this concern that we're going to exclude those who don't share our Christian faith or maybe try to create some kind of, we're pushing for some kind of theocracy. We're not always make the joke, even within Christendom, we can't all agree. I mean, this is why you have several denominations. I mean, think about the Reformation. <laughs> what was that? You know? So just, it's more of, for me, I'm never going to hide the fact that I'm a Christian. I will never hide that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. But our goal is not to try to compel others to follow along in my faith. It's more so this is how I live my life. This is what motivates me. It's that commitment to God that allows me to, that compels me and forces me to be consistent because at the end of the day, I answer to him. And it also, I think, as well as a Christian, the belief that all human beings are made in God's image. 
that is something so unifying. What could potentially unify all human beings? Because we divide ourselves up in all these categories, whether it's race, whether it's gender, religion, sexual orientation, we divide ourselves up in all these categories. And then when you're in a category and I'm in another category, that automatically puts a wall between us and that opens the door for division. But when you see each other as we're all made in God's image. It's such a unifying thing that even if I see a person laying on the floor covered in feces, I don't see something disgusting. I see a fellow image bearer who needs my help, who needs my love. And I think that it causes us to be more kind to people, even when they treat us terrible, because I don't see an enemy. I see a fellow human being made in God's image, just like me, who is hurting or lacking in some regards is causing them to behave this way. And so that Christian notion of being made in God's image is so powerful that it makes it to where it's, it's, it's hard to hate people. It makes it hard to dislike people. It makes it hard to want to hurt people because ultimately every human being has inherent value, no matter how terrible they behave or even if I believe this person serves me no personal use. So it just motivates and directs how I interact with the world more so than the party must move in this certain direction because I am a Christian, if that makes sense. i got a quick question for you, Chairwoman. As, as, mm -hmm. uh, in the past, Republican, the Republican Party has been uh, uh, supported in no small part by the business community, the, the Chamber of Commerce, other business owners. Are business owners and the Chamber of Commerce business organizations welcome in today's Republican Party? Absolutely. Um, our business community is foundational to our freedom. And I know that's going to sound a little strange, but let me explain. Um, the ability to consume and produce goods provides us liberty. Because one of the ways people are controlled isn't just through limited information, but by controlling the means of production and consumption. So as a capitalist, making sure that we have a robust business uh, community within this state is essential to our freedom because financial freedom is necessary for freedom as a whole. This is one of the disadvantages of many people becoming dependent on government systems because now the government who has the power of the gun to control means of production and consumption. So in order to protect our liberty, it's not just important to have freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of the press and our second amendment rights, but also to ensure that we have free enterprise and protecting the business community is essential to free enterprise. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Christina Caramo, she's the chair yes. of the Michigan Republican Party. Thank you so much for joining us on the Murders Monday podcast. Thank you, guys. God bless. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Murders Monday podcast. Thank you to our guests, AFL-CIO of Michigan President Ron Bieber, Michigan Republican Party Chair Christina Caramo, and of course, Josh Pugh from Trescott Rossman for more coming into MERS World Headquarters. Also, thanks to the boss, John Rurick, and also Danielle James. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio in Okemos. Thank you to AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. Until next week, I'm Kyle Malin. Take care.